Welcome to the Guitar Omni Podcast. I'm Carl Woolwind of Columbus Classical Guitar. Each episode, we'll chat with a featured guest from the classical guitar world. Candid conversations, unique experiences, and career observations from the people who best know the guitar. This is your master class in life and the guitar. For more information and past episodes, please visit columbusclassicalguitar.com or see Carl Woolwind Guitarist on Facebook. So here we are with Christopher Berg, and he is the head of the guitar program at the University of South Carolina, um, and my uh, my first big teacher. Um, I, I studied with him uh, way back in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. Uh, got my bachelor's degree at the University of South Carolina. How long have you been there, Christopher? Well, first, hi, Carl. Um, <laughs> 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 so I'm finishing up my 43rd year on the faculty. That's amazing. That's great. So you started when you were 10. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I actually took a picture of my first faculty ID, and I occasionally show it to, oh, to my goodness, people, and they just <laughs> freak out. But yeah. And when, when was your last faculty ID? Did you get a new one every year? No, I think my last was probably from <laughs> ten, 10 years ago. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure there's there's a little difference there for sure. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> so what what what's what's new for you? What's been going on recently in 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 your world? I know that the, you had the the two books come out recently. Um, I have them both. I've I've gone through the the classical guitar companion book. It's really good. I think it's great. Um, cool. I'd like to find a way to start using it with my students, honestly. Um, and I've got the other one on on the to be read bookshelf. So, um. so yeah. So this is just so interesting. You know, I consider myself mainly a performer and teacher, and both of these books I wrote for my students. Okay. Like, originally, like that, yeah. that was the conception, and. Um, I think when you were a student, um, I must have had copies of what became my Master in Guitar Technique book. Right. You know, and we worked. So these were kind of like that. And the Master in Guitar Technique thing was published by Mel Bay in 97. Right. So, and, but that wasn't my plan going into it. You know, it was just something to help me and to help my students. And then, so the Guitar Companion... I conceived of it in 2000. So okay. Roughly 21 wow. years ago. Oh my gosh. And, it had, and I, I kept refining my ideas, and my original version of it was a little bit of text and like facsimiles because they were just easy to. And I actually, the first copy, I physically cut and pasted things, you know. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> and it. It's just, it's been a long slog to become proficient with the music typesetting software. Sure. You know, what do you use? Um, for that book, I used Sibelius, but I'm switching okay. over to Dorico. Okay. Yeah. 
which I really like. Um, I mean, I know more about Sibelius at this point, right. and after these books came out, you know, I just kind of took a break from anything involving notating and arranging <laughs> you know, or writing. So right. anyway, so, so that book, I counted it up once, but it has hundreds of pieces, exercise, examples, right. you know, that kind of stuff. And so, um, and then the other book by Rutledge, which is not a guitar-specific book, and this, right. this has thrown some people. I think when it first was published, some guitarists on, um, on social media, what? There's a violin on the cover. You know, it was in, in <laughs> well, I think I think it says it says practicing music, you know, <laughs> practicing music by design. Right. right. Um, historic virtuosity on peak performance. Sure. And do you do you um, actually cover any guitarists in the book at all? Some some are mentioned. Okay, but and, they're um, not. That's not really featured. You know, in terms of gathering information <laughs> because there might be there might be a lack of good information there <laughs> well compared to things like rubenstein you know <laughs> yeah um i mean we don't have artist teachers in our past right uh like late 19th early 20th century who wrote the, you know like joseph hoffman wrote about stuff you know joseph levine who taught right. at juilliard what do you think stuff. that is um, well, part, part of it is that the guitar wasn't as recognized, you know, um, I mean, Joseph Hoffman, uh, Paderewski, I mean, Paderewski was the most famous musician in the world. Right. You know, at the turn of the 19th century. Uh, uh, turn of the 20th, 20th century, century, yeah. So famous, you know, he was, became the premier of Poland. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's crazy. And, 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 and neither do any of my students. Right. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, when I first started using it with my students, I mean, I, I'll tell your audience what exactly what the book is about in a second, but, um, you know, word kind of got back to me that some students, especially new graduate students, who are used to, like, this guitar orthodoxy mm -hmm. work, um, why why do we have to read about these cellists and pianists you know but here's why so um and this has to do with the inception of the book when i started to get involved with it i didn't know it was going to be a book i was reading all these old writings about practicing and technique for other instruments sure you know and and there are a lot and there were journals like the musical courier the musical right. times um there's tons of stuff. The magazine, the Etude. Mm -hmm. I don't think any of these exist anymore. And just for my own curiosity, you know, I would dip into these. And then in 2016, I decided, you know, it's about time I read some of these modern books about peak performance. And these are things like um, the Talent Code. Sure. You might have heard of it. Uh -huh. and Talent is Overrated is another one. So I read all of these um, one year, and the, and I would have these nagging thoughts like, wait a minute, this is, I've heard this before. Like, you know, Theodore Lesachitsky said something about this, you know. Um, Mark Hamburg wrote in his book on how to play the piano. He, he mentioned this exact same thing. Wow. So, 
it hit me that these legendary artists from the past um, anticipated the ideas that were confirmed by the research of neurologists and psychologists, you know, 100 years later. Right. And this is the research of the neurologists and psychologists that informs a lot of these modern books. Mm -hmm. But, but really, there's nothing new in the thinking. You're right. The thinking has been around. Right. And so, you know, the word deliberate practice that I I don't use in the book, except to say that it exists. The psychologist Anders Ericsson, that was kind of his area of expertise. And he taught at Florida state. He actually died this year uh, or 2020. Um, but he coined the term in 1993. Okay. And a lot of people have just appropriated it and like stuck it on their blogs, you know, okay. and tried to define <laughs> it. And, um, but the prototypical deliberate, pra- deliberate practicers of the past, you know, were people like Hans von Bülow. Sure. Franz Liszt. Sure. Know, and they document right. what they did. And a lot of the modern research deals with athletes. But the first modern Olympics was in eight, nine, 1896, and there were there were no sports psychologists. Right. You know. Right. Like the <laughs> there were barely any psych- psychiatrists at the time. You know. I mean, that was that was right. that whole thing was new. There were no people specializing in arts medicine. You know. Right. Um, but these artists, you know, they were writing um, stuff that finds confirmation you know right decades or a a century later sure sure so so i found it fascinating that's fascinating yeah absolutely and there's a consistency in what they say even though they all have unique artistic voices sure and they're probably isolated and not communicating with one another and for them to find these solutions independently is just affirmation of the truth that is probably evident behind a lot of that stuff yeah and and so so that's why it's really for any um, instrument. I mean, there might be sure. instrument-specific attributes where it might cause for something to be modified, perhaps. Right. Um, but I found it fascinating. It's gotten some, of course, these, these are Amazon reviews. It's gotten some really interesting <laughs> comments on, on Amazon. And, uh, <laughs> I'll have to go look. Anyway, <laughs> I, you know, I don't want to go on too long about these books, okay. but that's the most re- recent thing. They came out within months of each other. Right. And it was the whole process was weird because you know usually what what happens is someone contacts the publisher and they send a um um a proposal for a book they have an idea for and then the proposal goes to outside readers and maybe they send a chapter and then it gets approved well these books they were done right and so um and i had no idea about publishing it and then there's this wonderful pianist on our faculty, Marie, Marina Lomazov, who now is on the faculty at Eastman. Oh, fantastic. And she devoured it in a weekend. You know, she got, had a copy and she, she read it and she wrote me and she said, Christopher, is this available? Public, can people get this? Right. And it, and I, I just thought of this, but that's when it, it occurred to me that, oh, Maybe other people might like to read. <laughs> you know, yeah. so. Um, well, I was, you yeah. know, it's funny because I was I was I was thinking earlier today, and and, and one of the things that, that that 
went through my head thinking about you was that, you know, I've, I've always kind of admired how, um, you know, you, you always seem to have things that interest and engage you that you pursue, um, of your own interest, right? You know, like, like it's not, I never, I never saw you as somebody who, oh, you're doing this research to further your career. It's more like you're doing this research and your career is furthered by it, but you're just doing the research because you were interested in it, fascinated by something and, you know, really getting into it. So it's, it's kind of, it's interesting that you mentioned that, like, you know, I've never thought about publishing this. I was just interested and <laughs> did some research and I get, uh, look a book. <laughs> well, it was, it was kind of like that. And so basically, um, I mean, I appreciate that comment. You know, I'm just curious. Yeah, right. Which is and great. I, you know, I mean, that's know, a, that's what like, keeps us intellectually alive. And and uh, you know, I, I, it's again, it's 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 kind of an admirable quality, and and uh, you know, something that, that that you know, I I I think of myself that way too. You know, and 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 I think it's it's uh, yeah, it, it it keeps it keeps us from getting old. <laughs> well, and and also this one of the things about creativity is. As soon as the idea of a reward or a finished product encroaches on the creative process, it's contaminated. It's over, right? Right. It's about the process, right? right? It's, not, it's not necessarily over, but it's it's, it's contaminated. I think. Right. Um, other thing. Uh, so, just to continue with this story, is that so I had these two proposals. The book was done, but I still had to write a proposal at Oxford and Rutledge at the same time. <laughs> no and, pressure there, right? <laughs> well, it was, and then they went to the outside readers, and I was sitting on my couch one day in June, and I got emails. I'm not making this up. Within 15 or 20 minutes from Rutledge and Oxford saying, okay, we want to publish the book. That's fantastic. <laughs> That's a yeah. that's a great day, <laughs> and probably a little a little intimidating at the same time, right? So. Yeah, and and just one more comment on the Rutledge book. The other thing that I'm really interested in is, you know, I have no desire to appropriate ideas that came from other people and of course. write them in a book about how to practice. You know, I say in the preface, it's more of a why do than a how to book. Sure, um, and. I really was careful about the documentation. I mean, the the, the amount of work for that must have been tremendous. Well, it was. Um, I, had, I had a few things that I did to, to make it less work, but that's, that's kind of more nerdy. <laughs> to talk about. Um, but it, it's not usual for kind of an, a book dealing with music performance and practice. Um, to have so many footnotes sure and i've gotten a few interesting funny emails from people like one person said so i wonder you know why did you use that format like why didn't you make a bunch of interactive videos and i'm like <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, your listeners couldn't see that i just slapped my head i i, I think it made the i think it made the recording i heard it <laughs> uh, <laughs> Why didn't you just make a bunch of videos? That's nice. Yes. I like books. You know, books are great. <laughs> I mean, I have authority as a performer when I walk on stage. You know, I have something I want to say. And I have lots of observations. But in terms of covering a subject this big. Right. You know, 
the authority has to be in the sources of the information. Of and course. then my role is in organizing it and making connections. Right. Sure. And, it, you know, it's, it's, I, I've, I've perused it, you know, I've, I've just gone through it. I, I, I haven't sat down and, and, and read it entirely. Um, but it's, it's not a, it's not a very long book, right? It's not, well, it's not a, how many pages is it? I don't, 160, yeah, 100 and, right, right. It has but I bet it's dense. It's, you um, know. Yeah, it comes to 188. Right. And Rutledge didn't leave a lot of white space in the page margin. Right. You know, I mean, I can't tell. So, I mean, it's not, Yeah. I was trying to think if I need a word count. I don't, I don't even know that. Sure, but sure. Hundred hundred and eighty-eight pages is right. enough. Sure, you know. sure. But it's it's, but it's, can... it's such a such an interesting idea, and it's in you know, um, I, I love the story of how it how it came to be. You know that, that it's just a, this organic thing that was happening in your mind, coming from these two different sources, and you thought, hey, you know, it's, uh, these these things are well, talking about the same thing from two different points of view. Well, you know, I really felt that when I asked my students to do something that might have been so at odds with their either their intuition, what they thought was their intuition, or the way they had been taught previously, you know, it's incumbent upon me to be able to let them know why. Right, you know, sure, absolutely. It's not an thing. Absolutely, right, right, right. Yeah, And I, I, you know, I would always say that that's... There's there's an essence of, of really proper teaching in in that statement, you know, and, and one of the things I'm always telling my students is, hey, if I if I tell you to do something and I can't tell you why or I can't explain it to you, um, you know, you shouldn't trust me either. You know? And this idea of, you know, it's of authority. It's it's. Uh, I'm not saying this is the only right or the, the only way to do this or this is the right way to do this or any of that that kind of kind of thing. And I always I always avoid the that kind of language when I'm teaching you know it's never it's never this is right or wrong it's hey you should try this and this works for me and what about this and explore and um, observe you know it's, it's it's those kinds of things so I think it's it's really that's really interesting it helps them develop the, the critical thinking faculty right like yeah not critical in the sense of like you know judging <laughs> right um, you know, unless we talk about discernment, but critical in the sense of discovering the value and meaning and of purpose course. of something. Of course, yeah. You know? um, and then, just a quick word about the Guitar Companion, because there's one unusual feature of it, and that is, well, it's not a method. Right. It's not a treatise. It's, and one reviewer on Amazon said it's a method, a treatise, and an anthology all at once. Which I found kind of interesting, but um, you know, most books, gu guitar books, are going to have an organization that's linear. Mm -hmm. You know, after you do page two, you go to page three. And right. my idea with the Guitar Companion is that it's got these nine sections. Um, I think they're nine that are broken up according to musical texture or um, such as counterpoint melody right. with accompaniment arpeggios or or you know harmony mm. learning the fingerboard and the idea you know we all know that guitar students come to the instrument with widely varying degrees of course of, uh, of previous uh, knowledge and skill right. 
And we can't just put them in this Procrustean bed of saying, yeah, play all. What a great word. (laughs) Play all 20 of those Segovia source studies. Sure, sure. Segovia's name comes first. So the idea is, you know, within each section, pieces might be seen to be loosely to have some loose progression. But the idea is that a teacher can sit down with a student and kind of design an individually tailored curriculum. Right. And explore ideas related to that, yeah. Yeah, like student A might be doing only stuff in the learning the fingerboard section, you know, with occasional foray foray into an easy arpeggio piece. Student B might do the be working in the section on scales and... Yeah. Well, I remember when, when I studied with you, one of the things that you had me do was was compile a notebook of relevant etudes, and and, and it circulated. It was, it was like, you know, pieces went in and out of that based on things that we talked about were, you know, you have deficiencies with this, look at these sources, find some things, go through this, you know, and I, I you know, I, I thought that was really, really, really very helpful, and I, I had that book for a, a very long time, and I, I, I don't know that... I, I used it regularly in my practice. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like a daily thing or, or anything like that at the at the time. But it was it was certainly something that was was always with me, and and you know those pieces were very familiar to me, and they they really helped me with addressing some of those things. Um, so it sounds sounds like it's, uh, you know, it's kind of that's maybe that's that's kind of what you were doing at that at that time, and it was that's where that was happening. I I guess I kind okay. of forgotten about that. I don't have yeah students do that although maybe the reason is is they've had a version of that guitar companion since 2003 right right so yeah it's just you're kind of coalescing that you know well it's funny because when you when your when your technique book came out you know i was really excited and went and bought it and it's like i already have like four versions of this (laughs) because every year you know it's like gotta go to kiko's and get the new book and uh you know it was interesting to watch it evolve and then you know to see it see it in print it's like oh yeah this is (laughs) this is the stuff so are you asking for a refund i'll I'll take no it's okay it's it's all right (laughs) an autograph though i want to i do want to get an autograph though on all all five of them the four that i used during my study and the published one. <laughs> no, they were great, you know, and, and one of the things that, uh, you know, and I, I, I had some instruction before I got to college, but not not anything, um, you know, I, I think you were you were the first respected pedagogue that, that I had any deep experience with, you know. Um, and, and one of the things that, that, that I found very helpful at that time for me was just, this this idea that that technique especially is something that you can break down and 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 be very rational about you know and, and I'm sure that your background of studying was sheer and and that whole you know physiologically based um, quasi scientific method I guess is is uh, it was probably some influence on that but you, it was it was really helpful for me and 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 because I know that a lot of the teaching that I had before that was you know you hold your hand this way because that's how you do it you know and and or that's how Segovia did it or, <laughs> well yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean uh, I, I, I remember when you came you know I mean that wasn't the case for with you about this Segovia yeah. thing but <clears throat> that was for a lot of people right right <clears throat> so one thing you might be interested Sheer hated my book 
That's that's great. That is great. He hated it. Wow. And so, yeah. And, and did he contact you directly to tell you this? So I, my relationship with him was never bad. Like the, a lot of my fellow students had <laughs> kind of breakups with him. <laughs> but well, I never you, did. There's, there's quite the list of your fellow students, the time that you were at Peabody there, that's, that's quite a, um, quite a who's who in the guitar world, if you ask me. So David Starobin, Manuel Barueco. Yeah. Yeah. Know, um, there were, then, there were some people there at the time, you know? So, but I just didn't, it eventually became too much effort to be in touch with him because his um, his attitude was like, well, if you aren't here having lessons with me, you're missing the latest and the greatest right. little discovery that I've made. Sure. And um, so I, I didn't send him a copy of the book or tell him it was published. And so he called me up. He said, well, I didn't know that you had a book. I just heard you had this book. And he didn't have it yet. Said, okay. How long had how long had it been since you had any contact with him at that point? Um, you know, I don't, I don't really know. It had been ages since I'd ever yeah. had. A, oh, he came to a concert I gave in Charlotte after he'd moved okay. to Winston Salem. Right. You know, and um, but anyway, I went to see him uh, before he died, and I think he died in two thousand and seven. I'd, I'd have to look. Sounds Something about right, like yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I was in Winston-Salem, and I was doing some guest teaching at North Carolina School of the Arts. And so I arranged to go see him. And it was in December, and we were having a nice chat, you know. Um, <clears throat> we were talking about, you know, Peabody when I was there, about some of the people some of the other students and then and then and then he goes so do you want to go downstairs and so downstairs was his guitar lair okay you know? and um at first like i was just fine to sit there in the kitchen and just you know and be so but when he took me downstairs i knew it was going to be like guitar so <laughs> so, so i went down and he looks at me and goes you know, I, I have your book. <laughs> and, 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 and then he goes, I've marked up a lot of passages. Well, so, oh my. so, I, so I knew what, what that meant because when I first went to Peabody, Cher took a shine to me and while I wouldn't say that I was a golden child, you know, um, he might have thought I was. Right. And... I would see other books he had marked up. He would, he, there would be this marginalia, you know. In fact, someone, someone's PhD thesis in the future might be the oh air. Oh my gosh! Mar- mar- marginalia. Where's that collection now? <laughs> I have no idea. And so I remember him showing me a book, and like in the margin, there was a big word "no" with an exclamation point, you know, and. Other things like this is wrong. <laughs> so, um, so I'm not quite sure how this transpired. Oh, so yeah. So he said, "Well, my 
copies all marked up. You know, there's some wrong things in your book. And then he goes, do you want to see it? (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to see it? (laughs) No, that's okay. (laughs) So I, I remember sitting there thinking, okay, I have a choice here. I can revert back to some chastised 18-year-old. Right. You know, being scolded by my guitar teacher. (laughs) And instead, I just just had this this Buddha moment where it was just okay, you know. You know, um, I didn't, you know, I didn't need his approval for the book, you know. Right. And I just said, no, that's okay. And, and, and then I did say, um, well, you must have been really happy when it went out of print. <laughs> <laughs> because it did go out of print for a couple of years before Mel right. Bay got into the print-on-demand thing. Right. You know, I, saw, I, saw it on, I saw it on Amazon. It was like $1,000. <laughs> I had forgotten about that. I would get yeah. emails from people <laughs> saying, well, since you wrote it, you must you must have a stash of copies. Well, right. no, I don't. <laughs> you know? So anyway, but as soon as I said, well, you must be happy that it went out of print. Oh, my God. It, that's amazing. He, you know, he, he laughed and good. <laughs> but but I know that um, the only reason to to react that way about a a, a book is if it's either is threatening in some way of course yeah or challenging right. some ideas but sure it, wouldn't that be what a teacher wants well i the other the other part is i mean I, I i wouldn't say that that your thinking is is absolutely like tied to his thinking but it certainly evolved from it you know and and, and there's a lot of mention of him um, in your material and, and, and certain basic concepts coming right from, you know, his, you know, his descriptions. Um, so I, you know, I, I would think it, yeah, as, as a teacher, if you had a student that came up with original thoughts based on the work that you had laid, laid down, I think, well, that's, this is great, you know, and and I I wouldn't, I also don't think that, I mean, I'd, I'd have to go back and, and, and dig in more, more carefully, but, I, I never saw any of your ideas as things that like were absolute like complete rejections or you know um, denial of of his ideas you know it was more like just refinements or you know Shearer introduced this idea and here's something else to think about you know but but the foundation is is solid so you know I think there's a and lot I was of that very careful. You know, to honor that and acknowledge it in the book. You'd have to be, I would Um, think, yeah. You know, it just seems intellectually dishonest, you know, not to do that. And, you know, in the sciences, I I don't know if you know this, but I only know it because I teach at a university and I would hear other people talk about it, you know, non-music faculty. And then I said, well, what is that? So (laughs) in the sciences... You know, the big thing is like how many times your article gets cited. And right. we have something called the, the H index or um, and other discipline. Well, in the guitar world, forget it. Like, right. <laughs> well, first of all, they don't read. <laughs> okay, you said it, not me. 
No, I, I, you know, I, I, that's one of my, and, and you hit on it a little earlier too, talking about, you know, taking ideas from other, uh, more highly developed pedagogies in, in the classical music world. I think, I think one of the, one of the things that, that I dislike the most about the guitar world is that very, that very idea of the so-called guitar ghetto, you know, it's like, if, if all you do is pay attention to guitar things and if, if the only classical music that you listen to is is other guitarists and you know the only things you read about are guitar related things I, th I think it's it's very closed-minded and it's it's like blind leading blind um, you know related to this idea that we we probably don't have a very intellectually driven well-developed pedagogy you know, and 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 it it it's a good idea to kind of reach outside and 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 do that. And I was like, you know, especially with the listening part of it. You know, if, yeah. if I'm if I'm if I'm playing early nineteenth century guitar music, I don't want to listen to a bunch of twentieth century guitarists playing on modern instruments like they're playing flamenco. You know, I, I would I'd rather <laughs> I'd rather listen to pianists and string quartets and people that actually have some sense of how to phrase that music. Um, so, you know, you know, I, I did this interesting thing um, last semester with my students. I had a little seminar with them. And I had different topics each week. But, right. Um, because it was online, it just it was pretty easy to do. Like I didn't have to take a lot of recordings to the classroom and scores. And so I did one. I think I called the session Rhythm and Magic. Or, or meter and magic, something. It was kind of comparative interpretation, but not of guitar music. I yeah. took um, a short piece, and the best thing I could think of was a Chopin prelude because some of them are just one or two pages. Mm -hmm. And we listened to Joseph Hoffman, Alfred Cortot, Maurice Rosenthal, I think maybe Eileen Joyce, I can't remember, three, okay. three or four historic pianists um, playing the same piece. Right. And my students, they were flabbergasted at the differences. I mean, they were like right. different pieces. Right. And, you know, above all, you know, nothing against my fellow guitarists, but a lot of gu guitar performances, actually other instruments too these days, the performances have the spontaneity of a metronome. Right, right. You know? Very rigid, and yeah, yeah. And these four performances we heard, each was beautiful, mm -hmm. you know, and an artistic statement, um, but in different ways. Right, right. One of the, one of the things that, that John Holmquist always used to talk about um, when I was studying, was studying with him was this idea of um, that the, the guitar sound has become homogenized. You know, like everybody's everybody's trying to achieve the same type of very clear, you know, made for made for popular consumption recording um, sound. You know, and and that that uh, he he was he was very much about the idea of developing a unique sound. Like this is your sound. You need to get in there and do it and develop that. And it's okay. You know, it's okay to sound different from other people. And and you probably want to because it's it's at first it's more genuine and. You know, it's something that you can use. Um, but I think that's, you know, with the rhythmic that's treatment is a similar similar kind of thinking. Yeah, Carl, that's a really cogent observation because um, it's almost as though the, 
a certain recording or a, um, or a body of recordings by, you know, this artist or, you know, another artist becomes kind of an oral urtext. Right. Yes. And then yeah. people unconsciously are like, that's what the guitar sounds like. Right. You know, or they hew to some overly facile kind of intellectual uh, uh, idea like, uh, what is it? It, always play Bach in the lowest possible position, you know, or, right. or you know, never use open strings, or just right. something. Sure, very sure. A, very absolutist. Right, right, right. Yeah, that, that, that's that's that, that's a strange kind of like orthodox thinking that that I've yeah doesn't doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But I guess I guess it gives people something to hang on to. You know, it's a, you know they they have they have rules that make them feel safe and <laughs> they, they can they can follow them. You know, you know um, one of the things I said to my students recently um this is halfway serious and but um for them to work on trying to get five different sounds from the same finger interesting right hand yeah, yeah. sure like you know whether it's a, if your nails are short enough you can do this but like a stroke that's all flesh right or a stroke that's some nail and flesh off the right side right you know maybe more off the center a lot of it depends on nail shape um sure but there are there's just, there are just different things that people right. can do. Right, you know. exploring again. It's getting back to that, that kind of exploring idea rather than looking for the right right way or you know and and you know, being being spontaneous. I think that's that's something you hit on too. Is is really really important. You know, um, one of the things that I've talked a lot to my students about too is is this idea of you know. Learning to improvise is teaches us about making music in the moment, you know. And I'm I'm not a good improviser. I can do it. I've I've made money doing it, but it's it's I'm not <laughs> I'm, I'm not good at it. Um, but I've done it enough to have the realization that that yeah, making music in real time and knowing what that feels like informs my experience of playing music that's written down, you know, mm -hmm. um, rather rather than this idea of Here's here's this this museum piece that I've created, and I'm going to pull it out and take the cover off and show it to you, and then put the cover back on, and then you know it's the same when I show it to the next person, um, and and I think I think that's a that's something that that that's really important to me, and I talk to my students a, a lot about that, and just that that you know that that idea of play and ex, ex, experimentation, observation, um, like you said, spontaneity. You know, it's just it's it's. It's something that's that's really important, you know. This idea that the music exists in real time as it's being made, whereas you know other forms of art might not be that dynamic, you know. Um, you know, um, there's a the last section of the chapter in the the Rutledge book, the Practicing Music by Design. Uh, it's a chapter on, on phrase storming, which is you know my word. Phrase storming, um, yeah. Phrase storming. <laughs> And, That's a great um, word. And, but the the end of that chapter is, is creativity, experimentation, and playfulness. Right. You know, um, and these are just invaluable qualities. Right. To have instead of this kind of perfectionistic standard that's Im imaginary. You know, right. That you have to try to force yourself into. Sure. Sure. So it, yeah. And what, um, I mean, do you think that, that 
that's something that that existed more so in the, in the past. And and I mean, I we talking about the effect that that recordings have had on on our on our on our listening the the oral urtext idea. Um, you know, do, do you think that's just a, a modern malady, or is it something that that guitarists in particular have have always kind of had going on or you know you're, you because your your experience when when you were a student is, pr- is probably a whole lot different from uh what people nowadays are doing and <laughs> you know just in terms of the technology that was available to you at the time and and what people knew about the guitar and and yeah. pedagogy and those kinds of things so i actually think to answer your, your question the first part of your question the you know, a century ago, 150 years ago, violinists could tell the difference between a violinist trained in Paris versus right. one trained in, in St. Okay. Petersburg. Sure, you know, sure. The same with with schools of voice, and maybe sure. And uh, I'm sure it's the, it was the same with you know with piano, um, and those the differences between national styles of performance have right. kind of uh, disappeared. Right. It's been, yeah, it's been homogenized, right? And um, so so one thing that w- was really pivotal to me, um, you know, this occurred after, you know, you left South Carolina, but um, oddly enough, it was playing the lute where you just have the tablature, no other indications on the page. Right. Um, that actually ended up being more liberating. Of course, guitar music isn't known for <laughs> its, you know, this plethora of performance indications. Right. Any Anyway. But, right. you know, there were recordings that people would hue to. And so anyway, so I had this idea. Wait a minute forget about the music being in the score what happens if the music is the sound first sure you know like your your observation about music happening in real time and I I don't think there's anything inherent about the loop that caused that to happen maybe it just happened because I was ready to understand that but um, because Busoni wrote something similar in 1911 about this. You know, Fruccio Busoni, the great pianist. Mm-hmm. So, But I had this idea, wait a minute, say this lute music existed as sound before it existed as notation. Right, of course, yeah. And so by flipping it on, the, on its head, um, it just kind of unlocked a, a level of freedom. Right. You know, that may, maybe wasn't there before. Um, sure. So, and I even had a uh, one of my recent doctoral students. He really wanted to do um, Soar's Fantasy Villageois. Mm-hmm. Um, at least I think he did. I don't know if I've suggested it or he did, <laughs> but he really came to love the piece. And the reason was that the piece is so repetitive and there are scant performance indications. It forced him it just forced him sure. to do stuff about providing variety and contrast with all Fantastic. the Fantastic. Yeah. And he just, he learned so much from that. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and and shouldn't shouldn't we approach every piece of music we play that way? You know, it's uh, you know, I think that's that's, that's the fun, and and yeah. So it. You know, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Houston has this great turn of phrase in his book. It's called uh, "Sketch for a New Aesthetic of Music," and it's really prescient. He's arguing against the overly literal approach to performance in 1911. Right, right. In 1911. And he sure. uses the term, the musical lawgivers. That's his term. And, huh, and he, interesting. He, he's referring to, like, you know, the dry and dusty pedagogue type of... The, the teacher, academics, you know? right. Yeah. And um, which, by the way, I have to say, just because I teach at a university <laughs> doesn't mean the, the negative connotation of academic... Right. Sure. You know, necessarily applies here. But um, he says, you know, the artist has to use notation as a way of capturing his his inspiration. But the, the composer, but the musical lawgivers now want people to reproduce the rigidity of the signs in yeah. the notation. Right. But it's up to the performer using his own inspiration her inspiration to release the sound right and and this is why i like these, that yeah these release. performers in the past ha could have it both ways they were following the composer's intentions and yet and so they were being faithful to the composer yet they were extraordinarily free in their right. interpretation, and, 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 and at a time when the only the only music people were hearing was was live music being created by people performing it, that's yeah. you know you don't you don't have that again that that hyper real authoritative source of the recording, you know. And, and I've I've done a lot of recording, and I I always tell people, um, it's it's amazing to me. It seems seems really strange that we go to great lengths to manipulate the data to make it sound natural you know you, th you think it would do be the most natural process in the world just to get a great microphone and a great system set it up and capture what you're actually hearing but that's not how it goes and and then mm -hmm. the the additional pressure of you know the fact that somebody can can listen to one note they can listen to every note that i play on a recording as many times as they want to you know and they can, they can hear the attack and they can hear the sustain and they can hear the decay Everything and they can analyze it to the nth degree. That's not fair, <laughs> you know. So yeah. it has to be perfect. It has to be, you know, or I have to be able to, you know, sustain the ego, um, uh, the the slings at my ego of of that kind of criticism, you know, and just say, you know, I don't care. Well, it's not perfect, but it it's I don't feel the same pressure to go and and, and play in public. You know, if I'm playing something. And here's it. You get one time through. If you're not paying attention, I'm sorry, you know. But you know, so I've always thought that that this process of of the recording is really really odd because we want it to sound great, we want it to sound natural, but it's anything but. It's a completely artificial process. And but that's 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 what we get in our in our minds of there. There's the music. That's what it sounds like. And and it, on one hand, it's a tremendous resource. The fact that like you mentioned, you know, you can sit and listen to a half dozen different performances of the same piece, and and use that to study is great, fantastic. But on the other hand, 
you know, how, how does, how do you let that seep in and how does it limit your, just your own choice choices about the decisions that you might make? Um, yeah. You know, what's interesting is the people who made these early recordings, they made them in the context of there not being a lot of recordings before them. Right. Exactly. Right. You know, and, um, as a matter of fact, I have, I didn't do this in that class I told you about, but I have four recordings of Maurice Rosenthal doing this, that the Chopin prelude that we did four. I mean, he recorded it four different times and they're, you know, they're different. Right. Are they vastly different or? You know, it... Um, not, not vastly. Okay. But the, the, they, they are different. Right. Yeah. The, um, so I wonder sometimes if, you know, one can't do everything. And I've, I've played about 400 recitals. I actually, oh, my gosh. And Concerto, I, I counted it up at one point, and I've directed well over 200 student degree recitals. Oh, my gosh. And, but, <laughs> you know, as we pointed out in the beginning, it's been 43 years. <laughs> uh, but... Um, so I sometimes wonder, if, well, I wonder, if, like, I've always been just deeply fascinated with the live concert, right. you know, the, the preparation, the um, walking out in front of an audience, right. the, the fact that it's um, maybe not a high wire act, but it's like, you don't right. know what's going to happen. And you just right. have to let go your mm -hmm. the expectation of any specific result. And you've got to stay in this flow of time. Right. You know? well, and that's what fascinated me. And I wonder, gosh, well, should I have, I only have one professional recording, which is my, of my own music, you know. You, you have, oh, the other, you don't consider the, the, the other one a professional recording? Oh, I do. I forgot. <laughs> that, that, that cassette. Yes. Yeah. That, With that's the caution? That's only... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know that was that was we, we, I, we spent a lot of time listening to that when I was when I was a student. <laughs> um, you know, did that did that ever make it into the digital age? Did no. you ever do that on CD? No. No. Do you, do you have I, the masters for it? Um, I do have a digital version that was made from the cassette. Okay, but not not from no the, the original masters. Yeah. Yeah. But that cassette, you know, what was on there was the Koshkin uh, Andante Quasi Pasacaglia Itacata. Um, some music by Torba, Capriccio Diabolico right. by Tedesco, Rigondi. Um, was it Opus 23? Yeah. Yeah. And, that must um, have been one of the, the first recordings of that piece. Did, did you know of a recording of that before you played it? No, I'd never heard it before. Yeah, and because um, that that, saying, that was really early for people paying attention to to Rigondi. And that I think I made that in 1985. Yeah, and I had played the piece at least a couple of years before that, and it must have been the first U.S. recording of the Koshkin. I th yes, I'm I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Because I, I recorded that piece as well, um, and I didn't know you played that. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You be, yeah I played it because yeah, because you're recording of it. Um, you know, that, that tremendous piece of music. Do, do, do you know the story behind the creation of that? 
well, I think I do. Like he wrote this Takata for Vladimir right. Mikulka. Right. And then Mikulka wanted an introduction, and Koshkin just had a day, and right. he wrote the Pasakalia. As I understood it, Koshkin thought he had written it already, and Mikulka was waiting for it for a concert, and he had put it on the program. And and he was waiting for it, and, and he, you know time was getting close by, and he, he got in touch with him and said, "Hey, um, about that 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 piece," and Koshkin was like, oh, I, "I thought I already wrote it." Oh no, I didn't. Here, let me get that to you. And and he, so he he had he had like you know three days to learn it or something like this before the the premiere performance. That part of it I hadn't heard. Yeah, I do know, you know, the Guitar Foundation of America thing was held in Charleston in 1999. And after that, I brought Koshkin to Columbia. Oh. And he, he did a master class for USC guitarists where this was totally coincidence. Five students were playing different works by him. Wow. So he gave, he gave a master class on his music. Fantastic. Five different pieces. That's, and, that's um, very cool. So... Um, we went out to lunch before or the next day, or, and he told me that he regarded that um, Pasakalia and Takata as his most difficult piece. Wow. I think it's a tremendous yeah. piece of music. I, 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 yeah, Pasakalia is one of my favorite things ever. You know, I think it's just, just yeah. yeah. I actually had someone play it just this year. Yeah. I, if, I, it's been a while. I played, every once in a while, I'll... I'll Put together a program that that's you know I, I, I get sick of, of doing things that uh, I have to do and I'm like this program's just going to be you know completely indulgent and and that 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 often shows up on 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 those it's been a, it's been a while though it's been so yeah I remember the first time that I performed that piece yeah and <laughs> people were just they were stunned yes yeah yeah you know, not because of me but because it was so different. Right from right. what they had come to expect of the guitar. I Absolutely, mean, this, it had its model. I mean, Koshkin never told me this, but there's a copy of Sonata that ha- that ends with a toccata. Okay, and, um, I'm pretty sure he had something like that in his head. Sure, sure, yeah, I can see that. But, uh, yeah, it's it, it's I I. Uh, I've I've had because the, the recording the recording that I I put that on it has it has Bach and Villalobos and um, Mertz. It was it was just a program that I had put together and and performed a bit and that I thought you know strike while the iron's hot let's get this <laughs> let's get this, this this committed to to recording while while I'm I'm still prepared. Um, but it, you know, I've had I've had a lot of people say, you know, your recording's really nice, except for that Koshkin piece, because <laughs> it's no. you know, it's it, it's not pretty. <laughs> it's like all this pretty music, and then like this really aggressive, you know, challenging to listen to for most Phil- people's ears, you know. Philistines. Yeah, yeah, that's what I think too. <laughs> and, 
I think you know there, there's 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 far more challenging music to listen to than that. <laughs> but I think just in in the context of everything else on the recording, it's like there's you know there's all this really pretty, very very charming stuff, and then here I'm gonna you know rip your guts out with some really really nasty dissonance and loud dynamic contrasts and you know, you know. And that was just the great thing when Koshkin appeared on the scene. You know, and he, is that he he just approached writing for the instrument in such a different way. Right. Yeah. yeah. What was what was the uh, was the Prince's Toys like the first thing to to show up from him? That's the first that thing that I remember good. hearing about. Yeah. Yeah, that was the first thing that we heard about in the West. Right. Um, was the Prince's Toys, and I I don't know how this happened, but I have like this old, I guess, original Russian, this anthology, you know, that this Pete, that the Prince's Toys probably first appeared in. Wow. Huh. Matanya had some really interesting uh, old Russian collections of things like that. How could, how could he not? I right, guess. of course. <laughs> of course. Um, but, you know, I, what I remember is there was some of it looked like it had been literally handwritten on paper about the quality of toilet tissue. <laughs> you know, it was ridiculous. Right. Well, I really understand because the yeah. paper in this Russian book that I have is like, it's awful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And where, where did you find that? When did you, when did you acquire that? You know, I don't, I just don't remember. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I don't remember it. Yeah. And it's got I Prince's think, Toys in it? It's Yeah, and a bunch yeah. of other music that I don't know what it is because it's all in this Cyrillic album. <laughs> you haven't learned to speak Russian in all these years? <laughs> so what do you do when you're not um, doing, like, incredible research on psychology and performance practice and guitar technique and, and all these kinds of things. What are, do you, what are, what are your non-guitar related hobbies? I, so I told you this wasn't going to be an interview show, but I'm just, you know, I'm just interested myself. <laughs> oh God, this is like the worst que question for me because my family <laughs> just, they, they call me without shame, a workaholic. <laughs> but if you love what you do for a living, then, you know, is it is it a bad thing, you know? And if you don't see it as work, you know, I mean, I, 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 I've been, I've been called the same and, but, uh, you know, I like what I do. <laughs> there's, there's a lot, there's some that does feel like work, but the gu guitar related stuff, and especially for myself, like learning new music, you know, um, and generating, generating ideas, I get just that part always feels like fun. Right. But it is true. There are probably some ways that I could use more balance. In my life. <laughs> I used to hike a lot, you know, and uh, since the pandemic, you know, I haven't done anything like that. Right. You know, I'm just afraid that it's, um, how can I say this? Especially difficult because I don't know what I'm going to say. Um, it's, it's like it's triggered my inner agoraphobia, you know. Right, right, yeah. It, it, there, there have been certain, yeah. I must say that there, there are certain aspects to the, the pandemic response that have not been, not been terribly negative for me. <laughs> you know, um, getting, getting to stay home and 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 read and and 
play as much guitar as I want to and, and those kinds of things has been has been good. Um, you know, digging oh. into to some projects, you know. Yeah. yeah, so your question about, you know, I love to read. I, yeah. You know, I read lots of different stuff. Sure. Um, you know, not necessarily. Mostly nonfiction? Music. Mostly nonfiction. Yeah, I right. rare, rarely read fiction. Right. I, I used to read a lot more fiction, and, and it, I, there were two things is, you know, I thought, first of all, like this, real life and the stories that, that real people have is, is is far more interesting than, than most of what I read in fiction. And I'm not learning anything. <laughs> you, you know, it's like, <laughs> if, I, if, I, if I want, if I want a nice story, I can watch a movie, but like, you know, <laughs> you know, what I've found and whatever I'm reading, you know, um, like there's this book by John McPhee. He's this great writer. It's called draft number four, you know, okay. and it's, it's about his writing process and, and um but usually in stuff that i read i'll i can always connect it to guitar to perform right to creativity. sure and sure so I, I jokingly tell my students that you know studying the guitar is the portal to all wisdom you know <laughs> i i i i can i can agree with that yeah <laughs> and they look at you crazy and they think what what is what is this man saying to me yeah <laughs> can you teach me how to play fast <laughs> so so carl were you around when they had the wall under hamilton oh yes did you ever see the wall I never saw it. So, so I, for, for for the the, the un, uninitiated listener, there was the um, the guitar practice rooms at, at, at the University of South Carolina were in the basement of the anthropology building, and there was a, a practice room in the very back um, where I don't know who started it or when, but there were pencil quotes um, of of things that you had said in lessons and classes and whatnot. Um, scribbled onto this this wall and it by the time i graduated the wall was full you know it was it was a typical practice practice room size wall but it was it was walls or ceiling to floor really really full um and i i don't have any recollection of any of the specific things that were that were said and i know that it i at some point in time i had to have written at least one thing on that wall <laughs> but uh, you, you never you heard about it but you never did you I, did you hear about it before it was destroyed i no i i knew about it i was just afraid you did <laughs> when were you made aware of it did you I'm not sure, but it's like you know that was your that oh was the space of the students. Oh, that, that's very respectful of you. That's that's really and it's almost fantastic. Like, <laughs> like I I just I didn't belong there, you know. Right. Like, <laughs> you know, my time with you guys was in the was in my studio. Sure. And um, but well, I have to say that one of the things about it that that I found amazing was it never it never degenerated into anything other than quotes that actually came out of your mouth you know it was it, it was amazing i mean it was really you know no there were no there were no stupid drawings or caricatures of anybody there there was nothing um nothing insulting it was, it was just it was it was there was a purity about it because it was just a, a wall of quotes you know it never it never became anything 
other than that. Wow. It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. Yeah. I, they, they, <laughs> so, somebody, one of the quotes was aberrant. There was in quotes. I, I, I can visualize the, the handwriting. I don't, I don't know who wrote it, but yeah, you must have said something you, like a one word response to something. And, and that, that was aberrant. I remember that. There was something about, there was a, a pun using Soar's name and something about an eagle flying or, you know, but I, I don't remember the exact wording of what it was. You know, it was like Soar, S-O-A-R, and, and Fernando Soar. There, there was some pun. There were a lot of puns, actually. There were, there were, I do remember that. Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> somebody should have, somebody should have documented this. Yeah. Somebody had to have just, taken a photograph of it somewhere. I I just imagine some hapless maintenance guy when he re, redid that building, you know, about to tear down that wall or paint it over whatever they were charged with doing, you know, because it's just gone. Although I got an email about 5 years ago from a student from around that time who sent me he had, he had written down about 10 or 12 things from that wall and he wow oh my gosh I, I, I can't remember what they are offhand I have it buried in an oh email oh my gosh you have to find that <laughs> yeah the, the wall was legendary yeah that was that was that was that was something else actually when when we were down there and visited with you a couple years ago um I, I had to visit the space because I spent so many hours of my life in that dungeon, um, you know, and, and it's, you know, still the, the building is still there and there's there's still the basement. And I think I think it's the same hallway. But, the, of course, they've redone all the, the rooms and their classrooms in there and everything now. But it was just, you know, I had and they, they, they locked the door to the street. So there's not that, that stairwell oh. down, you know, that the. the, the really sketchy <laughs> that was always fun because I used to I used to start practicing at like 10 o'clock at night I would that was when my practice started so I would I would be in there from like 10 to 2 in the morning pretty much every night wow well I am yeah. aware that over the years and this I'm sure, sure this happens at other schools there's like this practice subculture yeah <laughs> in music schools like there might be some people who get there at 4 a.m you know right and, and then there are others who like that's when they that's when they're leaving right yeah and there was there was you know? well i was i was often alone in, in that space it was not uncommon for me to be the only one down there at that hour um and actually i spent a night in in one of those rooms once when my dorm closed and i had I don't know whether, for some reason, my, my plane tickets were to go home for, for break were a day day after oh the dorms gosh. closed. And I don't know if it was a, a mistake or if something I did to save money. I don't, I don't remember what the story was, but I, I, I you know, packed up my luggage and I, I slept slept on the floor in one of those rooms before I, I went so and caught my flight the next day. So You were like homeless. For I was homeless, absolutely. Actually, you know, this is, I was... It's not. It's not the only. Let's just say it's not the only time during my undergraduate study that I was homeless. <laughs> Who says college doesn't prepare you for real life? Absolutely. <laughs> you know what's what's funny. I mean, the the other the other time when when that when when that condition could be 
applied to my, my, my state of being, I guess, is uh, it was right before I, I, I graduated. It was the last, basically the last semester or so that, that I was there. Um, and I, I, I tended to stay with friends who, who would let me sleep on couches and floors and whatnot. And I had all of my stuff in a storage unit, and I was living out of my locker in the music building. And at the time, I was, I was, you were on sabbatical. And I was I was taking composition lessons with Dr. Teuber, um, and I had been for for quite some time before that. But it was really productive in terms of writing music because <laughs> I was I was I was in the in the music building all the time. Um, I wasn't I wasn't my my degree recital was already prepared. I was just keeping it basically maintained, waiting waiting for you to come back so I could give my recital. And yeah, so I, I just I sat in the in the music building all the time and and listened, studied scores, copied parts, wrote music. It was it was incredibly productive. So I'm not, I'm not going to advocate homelessness as a condition for <laughs> for being productive, but it was it turned out to be pretty all right. <laughs> so are, are you still writing stuff? It's been a long time um, since I've since I've written any any solo classical guitar music, but um, the uh, the Irish Irish music thing that I'm that I've been doing for the past few years, um, we, we we kind of it's it's a fiddle fiddle and guitar duo mostly. He he also sings yeah. and plays some mandolin. Um, but a couple years ago, we we just as an experiment said, hey, let's write tunes for each other. And he wrote a set of tunes. I wrote a set of tunes. Um, in the in that style in the traditional style and then based on that we we did an experiment last year where for 10 weeks he was each of us wrote a tune and just completely randomly you know there was no like assignment in terms huh. of oh you know it's got to be in this key or we have to do a reel or a jig or whatever it was more just okay tune of the week for 10 weeks and at the end of that 10 weeks we end up with 20 tunes and we've, we've been putting them together into sets because the way that the music's traditionally performed is, you know, sets of three or four tunes because they're all only 16 measures long. They're repeated three times and then you move on to the next next tune. Um, so that that's actually turned into the, the, the new recording that we're making is going to be pretty much all all original material. But uh, yeah, in terms of writing... Writing any anything any solo classical guitar music it's been a it's been a really long time for that, um, and when I was a student I was writing other things as well but it was a super long time since then when I was when I was teaching at Otterbein, I I would uh, I'd write a lot of jazz tunes for both my student ensembles as well as for the the faculty ensemble and that was kind of fun um, but uh, yeah it's been it's been a while since I've done any big serious composing yeah. You mentioned your observations about, you know, you've done a lot of recording, yeah. um, and then you've, you've got this, your Irish, Irish duo is a, yeah. about to do a recording. I don't know if the Irish duo, duo has recorded before. Yeah, we did, we did one a couple years ago, yeah. D does it feel different recording that stuff than s the solo classical stuff? I would say parts of it are, are, are very similar. Um, you know, just in terms of, of the the... I've got a dog chewing on my shoe, which is what you might be hearing. It's it's not my digestion. Um, I you know the, I think I think the 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 time when you're sitting there and and tape is rolling is the same. You know I, I think that experience is is the same. 
um, the preparation is is different. The technical process, sorry, parts of it are are similar, but. It, you know, like when 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 I'm recording, I play a steel string acoustic guitar for the the Irish stuff mostly, yeah. and that's close mic'd. You know, the, the the microphone is like you know 12 inches away from from the instrument. I would never record a classical guitar that way because it, it would it would sound terrible. Um, you know, so it's almost like the uh, the opposite is 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 in effect. It's like the, I try to get the microphones as far away from myself as I as possibly can without it you know losing too much detail. Um, the yeah I guess I don't know I think there's there's I've, I've done a lot of different things in terms of the actual procedure procedural aspect of you know organizing how you're going to to get the material committed to tape um, you know whether whether you go through and you play entire takes and you're trying to get an entire take of something all at once whether you're breaking things into sections, you know, these, these sorts of things. When, one of the things, I did the, the two duo recordings with Stanley Yates. Um, I think the last, I can't remember when the last one of those was. But we, we basically had refined this system of sitting down and, and planning exactly, okay, we're going to record from here to here. And then, you know, these are, these are where the breaks are going to be for editing purposes. Um, rather oh, wow. than trying trying to get, you know, an entire, because you're going to edit it anyway, might as well make it easier on yourself. And what we found was that by going through and organizing that way and like numbering everything and, and having everything like on a chart, it, it just made the editing go so much more quickly. Um, cause you just a major, uh, just a, a fact or a matter of like plugging in, Hey, you know, we got, we need a good one of these, you know, and, and it, it, it was, it made it really fast and very smooth. And I've, I've, I applied that to to the last couple solo recordings that I did as well, and that was that was great. Um, but uh, fascinating, yeah. Because oh. so, you know, it's right? the the idea of yeah, the idea of, of doing, especially for something you know like a piece of music that's ten or fifteen minutes long. You know, the idea that I'm going to get that all in one take is and not do any editing is I'm, I'm not I'm not going to. There might be players in the world that, that do, but that's not me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, so I think going going into it with that in mind, um, you know, it, it, it's just it's it's being organized, I guess, you know, um, and I, I found that to be to be really, really helpful. So I go ahead. Sorry. Well, that, that is really fascinating to me yeah. because it's but I had never thought about that yeah. um, because it's adapting your process you know to the medium that's capturing absolutely rather, rather than the medium being a passive thing that captures this existing performance which right. isn't live for an audience but it's in the studio right you know? one, of, one of the one of the things that I learned early off um, when I first started doing doing recordings um and it was with another another band playing Irish music, and this is like back early two thousands. Um, and we hired a producer, a pretty big name producer, to come in and, and help us um, put the, the recording together. And I think we had the idea of here we are, this is what we sound like, and we want to capture that. And he approached it more with the idea of you know the the, the studio itself is is a tool that we can use to be creative, and we should do things you know. We should we should take advantage of that. So there there are things on that recording that could never be 
reproduced live, hmm. you know, and, and, but it, there's the, the way that that influenced the process of what we were doing with the music, I think was, was great, you know, and, and, and it was, it, it was still us and it still sounds like us, but it's, it was different. And, you know, I think, I think one, one way to, to approach that might've been, it's like, oh, we can't, we can't do that because we can't do it live. But the product that we ended up with was so much cooler because we said, hey, you know, we're, we're going to use the studio and what we can do as part of the creative process. And I, you know, I don't, I don't think that's something necessarily that um, can be as explicit with recording traditional classical music. You know, I mean, I think, I think there's, a, there's an aesthetic there that we probably want to try to fit into a lot of the time. Um, but that, that, that kind of thinking, certainly, you know, using different spaces or different different microphone placements, or um, you know, even like you know, the, just the process of deciding deciding in advance where your edits are going to be and those those sorts of things. You know, um, I think that's, that's it's part of the same thing of yeah, using using the medium. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's it's it's, it's been I, fascinating. I think that the the way the culture is now with computers and the the. Um, recording software and all of that kind of lulls people into this idea that they can make this great CD at home. It's amazing. Which, which you know, which they might probably could do if it, if the music's all digital. Right. But as you mentioned, recording classical guitar, you know, unless you've got it in a place that's large enough. Right. Um, yeah. Every For fun, every time I've tried to record something and you know, the mic's been too close. It sounded awful. Um, yeah. Yeah. Actually, the, the, the space that, that, that I use, I, I built a recording studio in my basement because I got sick of paying other people to, to do the work for them while, and not being able to afford it. Um, and it's, it's funny because I, I live on a very busy street, um, but my, you know, it's in the basement. It's all, almost completely encased in earth. Uh, double wall construction huh. and and the the room is probably like maybe fourteen by sixteen maybe at the at the, the widest mm -hmm. dimensions um it doesn't have other than the floor and the ceilings there aren't any parallel surfaces so that you know there's no possibility for standing waves or those those kinds of things to to happen in the space it sounds great it's a really nice sounding space as it is um and it's super super quiet which is really strange given the street that I live on um, so oh, it's 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 been it's been really pretty pretty good for for doing guitar recording surprisingly and I, I usually use um, a pair of uh, ribbon mics on the sides about eight feet away um, mm -hmm. they're close to the ceiling the ceilings are lower there because um, it's a basement, but uh, high up, so it's it's you know the distance from the source is as basically as far away as I can I can get them, and then a, a stereo pair in the in the middle um, for the center. It's it, it's kind of like a the, the recording industry refers to a decatree where you have two omnidirectional mm. microphones on the sides for stereo dimension, and then a, a, a stereo pair in the X Y configuration in the in the middle. Um, and it's kind of it's kind of the same idea, but it, you know, using using bi-directional ribbon microphones on the on the sides, and because mostly because that's what I have, and they sound great. Um, and how far away is the X Y pair? It's the same distance. 
Same about distance, about eight, about eight feet. Yeah, um, and and you know part of that too is is I think for some reason I have it in my head that that somebody told me, and it would be easy enough to look this up. The, the the frequency of the low E string on the guitar in order to get a full wave, um, it takes eight. It, the, the wavelength of that is eight feet. Um, so if you if you if your mic's oh, any closer than that, huh? you're not getting. I don't. I don't know if it makes any difference or not, but I, I I've always got that in in my head. Um, so, you know, and, and yeah, it's it, it's it's it is it's kind of interesting because, um, yeah, like twenty years ago, actually thirty years ago, I guess, you know, you had to spend a whole lot of money to get something that you can make in your yeah. basement now with your own stuff. And I've I've certainly spent a lot of a lot of money on gear and 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 a lot of time working on it and getting better and learning things about it um but you know the fact that that people can do this at all is is really phenomenal yeah um you know i was i've i've learned some about it but i didn't have the the analog version of any kind of background in that like you know i was not the kid or the you know who had like a tape recorder and was always recording himself right um, yeah, so it was, it was extra mysterious right. to me. Yeah. Well, there's, you know, in, in the recording community, it's, it's interesting because, um, and I, I found myself kind of falling into this a little bit too, is, is people get into, often get into recording to record themselves. You know, they, they, they want mm-hmm. to have the ability to, to capture what they're doing whenever they feel like doing it. Um, and and some nobody gave me this advice before I started getting into it, and I wish they had. But there's you know there's this common piece of advice that if that's what you want to do, you you should find like the simplest technology to use, because then you'll actually use it. If if you if you go and spend a whole lot of money and get the best, you know, setup you possibly can get, you know, you're going to spend so much time learning how to use it, setting it up, etc. That you never yeah right. You don't you don't ever get to the point where you're just turning something on and recording yourself, um, and that's that's exactly what happened to me. Is you know I I, I got into that and I, I ended up spending a lot of time recording other people and working on other people's projects. And that was um, when I when I did my first solo recording. That was a big part of, of why I did it. Was I had spent so much time working on other people's stuff, and one of them was another guitarist. <laughs> Who was who was recording some stuff for a a, a a demo so he could get wedding gigs, and he was being extraordinarily picky and, and taking up a whole lot of my time, and he was paying for it, so you know I couldn't complain too much. But I just remember sitting there thinking, why am I listening to this while my own stuff is sitting there waiting for me to to work on it? And you know, and and and, and I had that experience, and around the same the same time, I had a had a recording client who uh, was in my house on the verge of being violent. And I thought, you know, I'm, why, why is this man in my house? And why is he threatening me with a screwdriver? And this is really scary. Good heavens. And, and, and the music was fine, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't anything that, that, that I felt like the, this is great artistic content that I'm, I'm creating for the world. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to stop recording other people. <laughs> You know, and, and I did. So I, I, I kind of oh. got out of that, um, out of that gig, and and that that allowed me to 
to kind of concentrate on doing my own projects, which was, was you know, why I got got into it in the first place. But that was, I mean, that was just 10 years later. <laughs> did you record that first Baroque guitar CD? I did. Uh, yeah, I huh. thought that sounded great. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I think the second one sounds better. You do? Yeah, I just confess, I still haven't heard that yet because I haven't been on any long trips with my, um, with my um, gasoline-powered CD player. <laughs> I actually, I recently bought a CD player for the, the same reason. I thought, you know, I don't, I don't really, I don't have, I don't even have one in my car. So that's hilarious, the gasoline-powered CD player. But uh, yeah, every, everything everything I've recorded is is has been down there in the basement, and, and uh, you know some some of it some of it I'm, I'm I'm very very pleased with. You know I I, I like it all. There's there's uh, it, it's again it's it's kind of it's it's interesting that there can be even with the same microphones in the same space, same equipment. There, there's the 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 variety that that happens is is surprising sometimes. There was um. Yeah. There was when when I was working with Stanley. There was a day I don't remember how it went, but we had, we ended up having having to redo uh, something because we, we had gotten to a stopping place or something happened, and we were like, yeah, we, let's, we'll, "We'll just do it tomorrow. It'll be fine, right?" And literally, you know, touching nothing, going in the same room, the same instruments. A day later, turning everything on, recording. It's like. We, when we tried to put them together, it was it was extremely obvious that they were not the same. Wow! And it was very strange, you know. And I've, I've run into that a number of times. And it and, and who knows, you know, the humidity, like it's just very very odd. But uh, um, I'm, assuming to... that, I'm assuming that one of you, or maybe both together, would actually do the physical editing. We we did it together. Yeah, we would do it together. Um, and and like in as the the, the process that the, the organizational process that we came up with when we were looking working on the last project that was part of part of the, the necessity of doing that was was doing it together and and rather than it being very random and, and uh, kind of hard to communicate about because you know if you do something by yourself. You know, you've got all this machinery going on up here that nobody's privy to, you know, and you're just jumping around and, 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 and you know, but when you have somebody else involved in the process, um, you have to have ways to communicate about, about those things. Um, and it was just a, and it wasn't, you know, we, we weren't having, there wasn't friction or anything, but there was a, it was a, it was a much more efficient process when we finally got yeah. the, got the organization down. Um, but uh, yeah, and we would, it, we would do all the tracking. We'd set a, set aside days for tracking, and then whenever whenever it was was recorded, then we'd, we'd set aside days for for the editing after that. And then you know it's it's it can be grueling, but the other thing is, you know your ears they get fatigued like anything else. You know you can't, and once you get to the point where you're not hearing clearly, there's no point in continuing. And then for for most folks, that's you know that's about four hours. You you spend four hours listening to something, sure. and you don't trust what you're hearing anymore. So, um, so, so I'm assuming the, that these predetermined edit points were things like double bars. Absolutely, yeah, know? yeah. So yeah. things that, that that make sense. Some some structural logic for sure yeah yeah um which which is great because you know um 
isn't it, isn't it isn't it a good thing to know where all your phrase endings are? <laughs> shouldn't you, shouldn't you shouldn't you be really really explicit about that before you you know before you start recording? Definitely. There's there's this um, guitarist at Peabody when I was there who was really into recording and he had a tape machine and he had this uh, I forget this thing must have had a name but this metal plate that was angled and you would slice the tape with a razor blade Uh and then you would you would have sliced the other you know what you're going to splice into would be cut at the same angle and you know so that's the same as I guess what you're going to fade right yeah if I had if I, I I've often told people if I ever had to if that's if that's what recording was like nowadays, I would never have gotten into it. I, I'm not I'm not very good with arts and crafts, and uh, <laughs> I tend to make a gluey mess of, of anything that has has any kind of that that thing going on. But yeah, it's so easy now. I mean, it's 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 like word processing with sound, you know, and, and you can see it. If you, if you do it enough, you get you get to the point where you're looking at the waveforms and you can you can see. Oh, I know exactly where that is because I can see it. You know, it's it's very strange, yeah. but it's you know, it's amazing. It's amazing, and whoever whoever first did that came up with that. Um, I think was a genius. So this is uh, this is where all the noise is coming from. <laughs> and, and so, what's his name or her name? This is Sammy, and he's one of my regular uh, daycare clients. He's about a year old, and uh, he comes about twice a week for daycare. And we have a good time. So, but he's he's pretty pretty well behaved for a, a one year old pup, even though he's making yeah, choking right. noises. So. <laughs> well, he, he certainly likes you. Yeah, he's he's pretty he's pretty sweet. So, yeah. So yeah, great. Um, wow, I think I think I think we've we've covered a lot of ground. <laughs> good, good. It's really. It's really been fun. I, I've actually learned yeah. a lot of stuff. Well, thanks. Yeah, I think it'll, and, I think it'll, you know, I think it'll be, be enjoyable to listen to, even even though there's dog choking sounds. You are. <laughs> but it just reminds me, Carl, that over the years, it's like I've just been so lucky to have had all these students, and it seems like every era of students, whatever that means, every five years, you know, mm-hmm. maybe there's always a new batch. Like, there's always been this, and you reminded me of this when you are talking about the wall, this this esprit de corps amongst sure. the students. Like, right. And people have talked to me about it after the fact. You know, I'm not so conscious of it, deliber- but were the students, like, they're all kind of doing the same thing, and they're more supportive than competitive. Right, right, yeah, and and I think I mean, you you certainly have a hand in in the creation of of that environment, you know. I think I think the things one of the things that uh, I take from from my experience during that time was, um, you know, the example that you set about what 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 are important things to be focusing on, you know, um, and I think that's that's. You know that that's that's where that comes from. You know, you created an environment where where that was that was possible. So, what's what is what's the current esprit de corps? Do you think what is it what is it like? Well, it's it's a little different now because of things are on Zoom. 
right know? <laughs> and so people aren't seeing each other face to face and they're um they're at the point where they're really missing it right you know right but it was quite good going into lockdown and and some of the, a lot of most of that has kind of remained in this online right. version but the students are getting impatient to right kind of to see each other and you know go out for a beer after master class of course right <laughs> monday at 6 <laughs> 30. So, um anyway i can't wait to hear the other episodes of your podcast it should it should be a lot of fun so i um trying to think who else i have lined up um a young guitarist named Siad Wells. She's in Austin currently, and she's she's doing this really interesting thing called the Margins Guitar Collective. Um, and she's 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 in her twenties, I believe. So it's a much different much different way of understanding the world than than my eyes have. Um, you know, I did I I had Tony on for three hours last week, which was I, I didn't want to stop. It was it was amazing. It was so many stories. I think I think we're gonna get several episodes out of that out of that one. Um, and I've got to have him back too. Um, and then uh, Matt Gould from Duo Forty Six, who's a longtime friend of sure. mine. I, I, um, I, 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 he's he's, he's signed up. We we spent a lot of time going to conventions and competitions around the same time, and so it was like. Um, we'd see each, see each other a few times a year and then mm-hmm. every once in a while I'd visit him when he was living in Baltimore and, and um, Beth, his wife, was from Cincinnati so he was often in Ohio um, so he's he signed up Jim Marin, who was teaching at University of Akron mm-hmm. um, is, is signed up uh, I've talked to um, oh, Ken, Candace Mowbray is, is, she's scheduled I think coming up next week um and i've talked to yeah talked to scads of other people basically i went through my friends list first and then <laughs> from there i've been going on to who who might be interesting to talk to so and if you have any suggestions or anybody that you think might uh might be interested send them my way so okay I will. I will. <laughs> but Thanks so much. It's been it's been great, and I, and I'll uh, I'll definitely have you back for another episode because I think I think there's more that we need to talk about when a dog is not destroying my studio. <laughs> I, I said, have one quick question for you. Absolutely. I'm send you a link if you don't already have it. Have Have you heard what's happened with Tree Editions? You know, no. Ironman? No. Well, and there's a. In, he started in the 80s and published a lot of lute, facsimiles, and Baroque guitar stuff, too. Oh, wow. Baroque guitar. Okay. But he died in December, but as part of his, I guess, bequest, all of this literature is online. Oh, my gosh. Download. So I'm going to send you the link. Yeah. Um, you know, there might be stuff you want to have a look at. Absolutely. Thank you. You know, Or you might already have it all, but, uh, you know, it can't, can't hurt. Right. Sounds great. It's really great to see you. And um, likewise, thanks for thanks for for doing this. Appreciate it. And I'll I'll let you know when when it when we're going to air and all that stuff. And uh, uh, I don't think I have to do any heavy heavy editing. So that's good. That's good. (laughs) Do do you have have theme music? I do. I do. Yeah. I I I have. it's, I have three different intros and three different outros. Um, there is Molino and Lignani 
and mm-hmm. Zanni Di Ferranti. So <laughs> you'll, so, you'll so get to hear it all. Pieces from that 1820 book, Guitaromani? There aren't any. That would have been a great idea. Oh, that would. Have, I didn't even think about that. That's that's. I might have to rectify that situation. That's a fantastic I, idea. I actually don't know if those are any good, but um, okay. <laughs> wait, well, wait till you I'll, see the cover art. The, the the cover art for the podcast uh-huh. is a stick figure drawing of the people with their guitar clubs beating oh, wow. each other. Yeah, it's 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 pretty pretty humorous. So I'm I'm really well, happy. As with soon it. as it comes out, I'm going to tell everybody about it. So fantastic! I'm going to be famous. Finally, it's going to be the podcast that's going to do it for me. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I'll see you later. Bye. This is Carl Woolwind of Columbus Classical Guitar. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Guitar on My Knee podcast. For more information and past episodes, please visit columbusclassicalguitar.com or Carl Woolwind Guitarist on Facebook. <laughs>